the whole purpose of redemption, the whole purpose of creation, the whole purpose of the world, the universe, human history, is so that God can collect a bride to give his son, a bride that's an expression of his love. You're listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. Today we continue our series, Jesus Is, through the Gospel of John. We hope you enjoy the study of God's Word. I want to start today with a little story. In the mountains of the Northwest, uh, a man was sitting beside a campfire, and uh, he happened to be roasting some kind of bird over the fire with eager anticipation. And uh, about the time that the, um, that the, the bird that had, had been fully cooked, a, a forest ranger came upon the camp, and he asked the camper, hey, uh, what are you preparing for dinner? And so the camper replied, uh, it's seagull. Well, a frown came over the <laughs> ranger's face as he informed the fellow that uh, it's against the law to kill that particular bird in that state. And so he's, he's going to have to give him a citation. And so the camper responded by telling the ranger, look, you have no idea. I've been, I've been stranded out here for days, and I, I've barely been able uh, to catch the seagull and then to kill the seagull, and then to uh, defeather the seagull, and then to roast the seagull. This is my lifeline, and I'm barely hanging on. I'm so glad that I caught the seagull. You can, I guess you could give me a citation, but please, ranger. And so the ranger said, you know what, <sighs> listening sympathetically, I'm going to let you go this time with just a warning. And so uh, as he went to walk away, he turned around to the camper who was relieved, and he said, uh, the ranger said, so just, just curious, what, what does seagull taste like? <clears throat> and uh, the moment, for a moment, the camper uh, thought, and then he said, well, I would put it somewhere uh, between a spotted owl and a bald eagle. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, the camper's words got him into trouble. He would have been better off not saying anything at all. Now, as a pastor, there are times in the pulpit, I've been uh, teaching, whether it's in the, uh, the pulpit, in the main pulpit in service, uh, or as a youth pastor, or in small groups for about 21 years. And I've got to say, there's, there's been at least one moment when I have misspoken. It's happened quite a few times. It actually happened most of the time when I was in youth ministry, and I was trying to connect with the students, and so I was trying to be relevant to them. And so I would say things that make it sound like I was a 28-year-old trying to be a 13-year-old. And so complete, hashtag cringy, I mean, it was bad. It was really awkward. And so I tried to relate to them, and they go, that's not, that's not what that means. You know, you're using the slang word that is either from the 90s or it's, it doesn't relate. And so uh, I, I've, I've misspoken a few times, for sure. But I've never, this has never happened to me, where I have gotten up in the pulpit and said, I want you to hear me this morning. I am God. Does everyone understand me? I am God. If that ever were to happen, I believe that you are well taught enough in the scriptures, that you're Bereans enough, that one of you, if not all of you, at the close of service, as Micah gives that benediction, and you're putting your chairs up and going to leave, I pray and I ask and I hope, and you have the invitation from me, that all of you, that most of you will come up and punch me in the face, all right? Give me a heretic hand slap. And yes, that should be a thing. Heretic, can we make this a heretichandslap.gov.org? We should do that. Slap me, hit me, why? Because far be it for me to ever misspeak or miscommunicate for you to get the idea that I am in any way God, far be it from me or any mere man to make an audacious assertion to be equal with God. However, 
That's exactly what we're going to hear Jesus asserting today in our text. We're going to see today how Jesus makes the case that he's not just any man. He's not just some religious teacher. He's not an exceptional rabbi. No, Jesus is different. Jesus is so completely unique from all mankind that all mankind stands apart from Jesus. Amen? He is, to use a Latin phrase, sui generis. He's in a class by himself. Any Latin fans here today? Jesus is set apart. He's different. He's distinct. And in this text that we're going to read, he makes some of, listen, the most absurd claims ever uttered by a human. And it begs the question, is he merely a man or is he something more? Is he greatly mistaken or is he the son of man? Jesus is not just saying, I'm godly. He's saying, I am God. And we're going to see Jesus speaking with religious leaders today and showing them how he is equal with the Father. And so we're going to understand that uh, theological concept today. Jesus is equal with the Father. J.C. Ryle says this of this text. He says, nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship as we find in this discourse. Now, to set this up today, uh, we have to find out why are we here in the middle of this dialogue. If, you're, if this is your first time with us, or first few times, and you haven't been here in the, the teaching um, the last few weeks, you make guess, well, like, what is this about? Where am I at? And so um, last week we mentioned this is kind of part two of a three-part trilogy. And if you've seen a movie or read a book, the opening book sets the stage. So last week was the opening kind of setting the stage moment. Jesus, if you remember, last week in John 5, 1 through 17, heals a man who was sick for 38 years. And so he's laying next to the pool of Bethesda, and Jesus comes up and says, rise, take up your bed, your mat, and walk. And so um, that happens. He miraculously did. But the religious leaders were really put off by that. Uh, And the reason they were is when it was taking place. Yell it out if you remember when that took place. Very good. The Sabbath, which is the day you don't work. And so the fact that he picked up his bed, that equated work to the religious leaders. And so eventually they find out who's responsible. It's Jesus who's responsible. So they go to him to give him a stern talking to. Look on the screen, verse 17. We learned this last week. Jesus answered them and said, my father has been working until now and I have been working. In other words, the Godhead doesn't need to take a Sabbath. Jesus is saying the father and I are at work and we don't need to take a break. And so we learned last week, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. And so as Jesus says, verse 17, listen, he's attributing uh, his identity as divine. And so because of that, they're ready to put him to death. They are ready to kill Jesus, and they're going to keep trying until they do succeed. And so the section we're going to study today is kind of like part two, where the conflict really gets heated, uh, and then next week we'll see part three where Jesus, um, basically the rest of the chapter, he drops this huge argument on the Pharisees that no one can bounce back from. So we're going to see today that Jesus has a very unique relationship with the Father and why he does, okay? Uh, what we're going to do today, usually we have three points in an outline. We're not going to do that today. We have a, kind of a seven-point um, sermon. So don't worry. We'll still get out of here before 3 o'clock today. We'll, we'll be fine. Uh, it's going to be seven quick points on why Jesus is equal with the Father or how he's equal. 
And so um, before we do that, I want to look at verse 18. So look at verse 18 with me. It says, therefore, the Jews sought all the more to, what's your word say there? To kill him. This is a thing. They wanted, we are so mad he's not keeping the Sabbath that we're willing to break one of the other Ten Commandments and kill him. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but, here it is, also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Why did the Jews want to kill Jesus? Because he broke the Sabbath, but even more so because he says, my father's working and I'm working. Okay? Notice that Jesus here says, my father. Okay? The Jews would sometimes speak about our father, uh, or they, if they said my father, they would always add in heaven, my father in heaven, just to be clear and to be careful that we're not too familiar with God as our father. But Jesus here speaks of God as his own father in the most intimate of terms. Now, if Jesus were not God, then when the religious leaders get stressed out about this, this seeming assertion of divinity and familiarity, he would have been very careful to correct himself, okay? They would have come up giving him the heretic hand slap, and he would have said, whoa, 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 you guys misheard me. I'm not trying to say I'm equal with, you know, our heavenly father, far be it from me. He would have cleared it up. Uh, but instead, he goes even more so into correcting uh, their idea and explaining it. Uh, see, the Jews would not accept our current new age kind of, you know, Shirley MacLaine-ish philosophy that God is within all of us, we are all God, uh, or uh, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't believe that. And so if you came and said, I'm equal with God, that's not an accident. That's a damnable heresy. And you didn't make that mistake. You could get in a lot of trouble for that. And so many people say, Jesus never said that he was God. And I would say, okay, he doesn't say the words, I am God, in this verse, but it's very clear that the Jews thought that that's what he was doing and they wanted to kill him. They already didn't like Jesus, so if he's not God, why wouldn't he just correct himself? Why give them a reason to kill him if it wasn't true? But Jesus goes deeper into what he says, and look at verse 18. It says that he made himself equal with God. Would you circle that word equal? this morning, circle the word equal. In the Greek on the screen, it's the word esos, which means equal in quantity or quality. Now, I don't know, I was an English guy. Are there any math people here? Can I see your hand? Who are my math friends? So if I have an, an issue, I can call on you. Some of you, all right, I need a tutor for my son, great. Um, if you remember from math, geometry in high school, there was these different triangles, and I tried this one out on my kids the other day this joke, I said, hey, um, why did the square like the triangle? And my daughter's like, why, Dad? And uh, I said, because he was a cute triangle. <laughs> and she goes, that's not funny, Dad. Don't use that in the sermon. I just did. <clears throat> so, fail. So, in, uh, in geometry, there's the isosceles triangle. Remember that isosceles? All the sides were equal on the isosceles triangle. That's where we get the word from. Uh, we get it from the Greek word is or esos. Okay? And that's the word that's used here in this text. Jesus is making himself equal. Same proportion. He is equal with the Father. Listen, God the Father and God the Son enjoy a very unique relationship. We'll see the relationship between Father, Son, Holy Spirit later next year when we get to John 14, 15, 16. Uh, but there is uh, a few reasons why there's, there's um, some special um, qualities to their relationship. So I want you to jot these down. First, First thing I want you to write down, there is personal distinction. I don't have these on the screen, so you've got to do your own work. There's personal distinction. Personal distinction. Jesus, what do I mean by that? Jesus is not the Father. The Father's not Jesus. They aren't acting in different modes at different times. Like, I'm a husband, 
and I'm also a father, and I'm also a bacon enthusiast, okay? Uh, I'm all of those at the same time, okay? That's not the idea. A lot of us have thought that's the Trinity. Well, he's God in one moment, the Father in one moment, he's Son and he's... No, so when you're praying, Lord, thank you for this day, it's not like the Trinity's like, well, well, who's, is he praying to me? Jesus, thank you. Oh, that's for me. And so we sometimes misunderstand this idea. Um, that is a false teaching, a heresy called modalism. Modalism. On the screen, it means one God in three different modes. Oh, he's just acting. Okay? That's heretical. Right? We reject that theology about the Trinity. That's not biblical. Okay? So there's a distinction. But secondly, I want you to jot this down. There's beautiful unity. Personal distinction, beautiful unity. The Father and Son, think about it, are both actively at work with the same purpose in mind. Jesus is not acting independently of his Father. Some would teach that Christianity is a faith in three separate gods. That's also a heresy. On the screen we call that tritheism instead of monotheism. That's tritheism. That's three separate gods. We don't believe that. Many misunderstand Christianity. No, there's unity in the Trinity. There's unity, think about this, in the work of salvation. The Father's initiating creation and redemption. The Son is doing the redemption, part of it, the redeeming. And the Holy Spirit is regenerating and sanctifying and applying redemption to believers. So there's unity. I love this. Not only that, but thirdly, if you're jotting this down, there's love, not rivalry. There's love, not rivalry. See, the Father loves the Son, and the Son is motivated not out of responsibility, but out of relationship. Because of the harmony in the Godhead, there's preference and there's delight. There's not competition or frustration. Uh, finally, number four, I want you to write this down. There, uh, this is intrinsically, just write this down, exclusive. This is exclusive. Okay? And that is the power uh, alarm for the pool, so don't be alarmed. It's all good. Okay? This is intrinsically exclusive. What do I mean by that? There's a bond and there's a connection between Jesus and the Father, listen, that we will never truly enjoy. Though God is our Father as well, there's, listen, a special relationship Jesus experienced with the Father as the Son of God and the Son of Man, okay? Jesus enjoys a familiarity and fellowship that we as creation will never fully fathom or understand. Uh, but he's invited us in to the beloved, and so we now have sonship with Christ. It's an amazing thing. But this is an exclusive relationship. And in many ways, those four things are kind of like a picture of marriage. So think about marriage. Like my wife and I, we are distinct, and yet we, we are one flesh, according to Scripture. We dwell together in glorious harmony, at least when I have the remote, we dwell in glorious harmony. And there's love, not rivalry, in our marriage, in your marriage. You're, you're united, yet you're distinct in your role as husband and wife. Uh, and I am to love my wife as Christ loves the church, and my wife is to submit to me out of reverence uh, for Christ, like the church does. And so this relationship uh, is completely exclusive. No one else is invited into this relationship uh, to kind of partake in it. No, uh, this is something only we experience. So think about what decimates marriage. It's when that Trinitarian concept gets marred by the fall. So think about it. What destroys a marriage? In our corrupt, fallen nature, what happens? Uh, we want to be more distinct than we should be from one another. So we drift apart. We lose our unity by preferring ourselves, and then we get into competition. We stop being motivated by love, and we start competing. Or we don't safeguard our relationship 
and it's exclusivity and we invite others in and that relationship's lost when that intimacy happens with someone outside the marriage covenant. So, man, the Trinity and the, the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit should be a relationship that we see with Jesus and his church and that we as husbands and wives enjoy. Chuck Swindoll says this, like a shadow which is neither identical to nor independent of the substance from which it is cast, so the Son and the Father are distinct from yet dependent upon each other. I like that. Distinct yet dependent. May our marriages reflect that Trinitarian love, unity, distinction, and exclusivity. So let's dive in now and look at seven ways that Jesus is equal with the Father. And we're gonna move fast through these, so I want you to jot these down. They will be on the screen. Uh, the first one is number one, equal in the work. Equal in the work. Look at verse 19. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do, what is it, yell it out? Nothing. Nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. The Son can do nothing of himself. Down in verse 30, you can look ahead. We're going to study it next week. Jesus says, I, of, I can of myself do nothing. These are kind of like bookend verses of this section. So in one simple admission, Jesus shows his complete dependence upon the Father. Jesus is not acting independently. He's motivated, he's empowered, he's driven, and he's kept by the power and will of God. He can do nothing of himself. Here's what Ray Stedman says about this. He says, Jesus could have created a whole universe over which he was God. He had the power to do so, the capability. But the whole point of this is he never chose, uh, he chose never to exercise that power for his own benefit, never. This is the explanation of his behavior in the wilderness when he was tempted by the devil to change stones into bread for his own satisfaction, to leap from the temple to gain the applause of people or to gain the whole world for himself. He steadfastly refused to do so. That is the key. God gives his power to those who will not use it for their own benefit. That is one of the most profound secrets in scripture. Jesus starts there, the son can do nothing. Wow. What a claim. Not only that, but notice the claim in that verse that Jesus says, whatever the Father's doing, I'm also doing in like manner. That is a, a claim that no mere man could ever assert. I'm doing the same work that the Father is doing. Think about that. Think about your kids when they go to mimic you, uh, dads, in the, in the garage, and you're, you're working on some type of project that involves wood and nails and dangerous things and tools, and you're working on it, and they've got their little kid set. And so they've got the plastic version of whatever you've got. You're not gonna give your kid you know, the, the workshops. Okay, son, I'm gonna take a lunch break. Can you hit, finish the saw for me? I know you're four, but just go ahead and handle it for me. It's fine. You just use the table saw. We don't do that. And so for us to make that type of assertion is crazy. Most of us are good maybe at multitasking, maybe. In fact, if I were to just rub my stomach and pat my head and invite you to do the same, Chances are none of you could do that uh, right now while chewing gum and reciting the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to guarantee that. It's, <laughs> we can't do that. Uh, so think about the work that God is doing today. We have a hard time focusing a, a coherent thought on Monday morning without caffeine. And yet, here's what God is doing right now at this moment. He's holding all things together. He's sustaining our planet at an orbital speed around the sun at a pokey 67,000 miles an hour. He's, he's, with, he's holding the planet in his hand. A little bit off course, and we freeze to death. 
little bit too close to the sun, we're going to have an extended summer that we're not going to enjoy too well, all right? He sustains not just the universe, not just our galaxy, but our bodies. Uh, today, your internal body temperature is exactly where it should be. If it's off by five degrees too hot, five degrees too cold for an extended period of time, you're dying. He's holding us in his hand. Uh, right now, none of us can do the work the Father's doing in our own body. In other words, you weren't keeping track of your heart rate or your breathing for the last half hour, were you? you, you well, maybe someone was. You're not. You're, you're just sitting back. You're not maintaining your protein, your enzyme, your cellular reactions. You're not working, worrying about any of that. Okay? But not just for your body, 7 billion people alive on the planet today. Okay? We have no ability to do that. We're not doing the work the Father's doing. I haven't even mentioned the nitrogen cycle, the water cycle, uh, the carbon cycle, photosynthesis. Anybody, anybody handling that? Can you watch the register for God while he takes a little break? No! There's no one who can stand and say, I do what's equal to the Father in work. Only Jesus. Number two, if you're taking note, Jesus is equal in love and knowledge. Look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does and will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Now, it may seem obvious here, but it's important to note that Jesus is not the slave of God. He's the Son of God. Jesus was not obligated to work. He was invited to work. When I invite my children into the work that I'm doing, it's because I love them. It's not because I want to burden them. I don't go, ha, I've got some work for you to do. Let me burden my kids. No, I, want, I love them. I want to invite them into the work that I'm doing. And so according to Jesus here, the basis of the unity between the Father and Son, he uses the Greek word phileo. Elsewhere in Scripture, we see agape. Here, phileo. Phileo is a friendship, a brotherly love. It's where we get the word Philadelphia, brotherly love from. John 14, 31, here's where agape is mentioned. I do as the Father's commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Uh, we can see the love that Jesus and the Father have, and that's what motivates uh, the work. Uh, John MacArthur says this. Uh, this is a fascinating quote. He says, uh, I'm gonna read a little bit and then I'll put some of it on the screen. He says, it might shake you up to hear this, but at the heart of God's redeeming work is not God's love for you. It's not God's love for me. Wait, not God's love for the world, not God's love for sinners? At the heart of redemption is the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father. You say, well, didn't Jesus die because he loved us? In a secondary sense, but in a primary sense, Jesus died because he loved the Father. Didn't the Father send Jesus to the cross because he loved us? In a secondary sense. In a primary sense, he sent the Son to the cross because he loved the Son. You say, how am I to understand that? And then on the screen, he says, you're to understand it this way, that the whole purpose of redemption, the whole purpose of creation, the whole purpose of the world, the universe, human history, is so that God can collect a bride to give his Son a bride that's an expression of his love. The Father will give to the Son a redeemed humanity collected one day in heaven forever and ever and ever to praise and serve and glorify the Son and always be an everlasting expression of the Father's love. Wow. Jesus is loved by the Father, and one of the ways that the Father loves the Son is by showing him what he's going to do. And so Jesus, therefore, had intimate knowledge of the Father's plan that we do not yet know. And Jesus says here, do you want to see some of the works that will make you marvel? Well, what could be greater than raising a man 38 years, his whole life, 
up from the ground. What could be greater than that? Well, we know it's coming in John chapter 11, raising someone from the dead. Even greater than that, rising himself from the grave. And so you and I may be loved by the Father, but we don't have the insider information on where or how God is at work. We can pray, God, open my eyes, and he does, and often he will. But Jesus was shown all the Father was doing and even greater things that would cause us to marvel. And that's a sign. It's a sign that Jesus was equal with the Father. Thirdly, if you're jotting these down, Jesus was, look at this, equal in resurrection power. We'll move a little bit faster. Look at verse 21. As the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, this is speaking specifically to spiritual life. Uh, Later, we're going to see spiritual life and death mentioned again, as well as physical life and death. Uh, But this is spiritual. The Father's at work raising the dead spiritually and giving them life, those who hear and believe Jesus. And Jesus says, I have that same power. Uh, I can't think of a greater power than to raise someone from the dead. You and I don't have in ourselves that power. We have resuscitation power. So there may be, uh, I don't know, a firefighter, EMT in the house. There's a doctor in the house. There's a lifeguard in the house. You have skills of resuscitation. You can bring someone back who is not fully dead for days and days. Okay, that's, res- that's resuscitation. But we don't have the power of resurrection. We can't give life to something lifeless. We don't have power in ourselves to give spiritual life. But Jesus says, I have that power. I have the power to give life to whom I will. Not only that, uh, but look at the fourth one on the screen. Jesus is equal uh, not only in resurrection power, but in righteous judgment. Notice verse 22. He says, the Father judges no one, hmm, really? But has committed all judgment to the Son. Interesting. Now, we'll see this a little later in the text, but I want to put these on the screen. Both life and judgment have been entrusted to the Son. Life and and judgment. Life for those who receive the gospel by faith, and judgment for those who reject the gospel through stubborn unbelief. If you're here today and you've not received Jesus as Lord and Savior, the scripture says you're already condemned. You already will face judgment. And so I I plead with you to receive Christ that you may go from death to life, that you may go from the camp of judged to those who have life. All judgment has been committed to Jesus. To the point that I would say this, Jesus, in a way, represents power of attorney. You guys know that reference? Do you know what power of attorney is? There was years back, my wife and I lived in California at Bible college, and we were poor Bible college students, and we we didn't have a car. Our car broke down. And so we were in the middle of Southern California in the desert with no car. And so my dad said, he lived in Vegas, my dad said, hey, why why don't you get over here to Vegas, and I've got this Volvo for you. It was an 84, listen to this, it was an 84, 240DL. You know, you know those Volvos, the, the little boxy ones that, that are completely square? They're like, we, we like square. No, no circular edges at all. Right? It's very, very 80s. And so he's like, it's free if you want it. And so we, listen, we got on a Greyhound from Southern California to Vegas. We took that trip. It was an overnight trip. If you've never taken a Greyhound from Southern California to Vegas, it's an interesting experience. Uh, Let me just say this. The flights and the bus rides into Vegas are very exciting. Everyone's going to win everything. Everyone's real excited. So that that thing was hyped up. We didn't get any sleep. Everyone's gambling and excited. The the trip out of Vegas is a little quieter. Uh, It's a little darker and everyone's sleeping. But 
We took that trip, and uh, we get there, and my sister had to represent me on the title. And so we left without the title and didn't realize my sister still had it. And so rather than sending it, I made her power of attorney. What does that mean? I signed over my rights to sign for my name and said, she's signing for me. Anything that she signs, it's as if I'm signing. You guys follow me? Maybe that's what Jesus meant when he said, anything you ask in my name, maybe that's what he was getting to. Not that you just say, in Jesus' name, at the end of some crazy prayer. But we're praying as if we're being given power of attorney. We're praying in the name, as if Jesus were praying that prayer. Jesus says, I've been, I've been entrusted, power of attorney, to sign off on judgment, all that the Father has allowed me to. Powerful. Now, skip down to verses 27 and 29. Uh, this kind of still illustrates this. It says, Jesus says that the Father has given him authority to execute judgment also because he's the Son of Man. And then he says, don't marvel, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now that statement would have shocked the Jews. They were angry, now they're shocked. Why? Well, they believe God held three keys. He held the key of heaven, which he opened or unlocked when it rained. They believe that he held the key to the womb, which um, a couple conceives, he's unlocked the key to the womb. And thirdly, they believe uh, that, that God held the key to the grave. And they looked back at Ezekiel 37, the dry bones coming to life. God had turned the key to the grave. Jesus, we know in the scripture, has the, the key to death in Hades. And he has the authority here one day when there's a physical resurrection. He has the authority uh, to uh, condemn or to give life. All who were given the breath of life one day will rise to life or judgment. And Jesus holds that kind of authority. You and I do not have that kind of authority. As, and I'll acknowledge, as awesome as your status on the HOA planning committee is, you've got some great keys to that neighborhood, we don't have this kind of authority. Jesus is unrivaled, unmatched in his authority over life and judgment. Well, number five, we're gonna move a lot faster now. Uh, verse 23, the fifth idea is that Jesus is equal in honor. Equal in honor. Look at 23, that all should honor the Son just as, that needs a circle, a highlight, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Wow, that's interesting. So in not honoring the Son, you're actually showing dishonor to the Father who sent the Son. It doesn't get much more important than bringing honor to God. And Jesus says, I also receive equal honor and equal recognition. John Calvin says this, the name of God when it is separated from Christ is nothing else than a vain imagination. Wow. And many people when they pray, and maybe you've been tempted to do this, when they pray they say, I don't wanna offend anyone at this banquet or at this, this Thanksgiving meal or at lunch with co I don't wanna offend anyone so I'm gonna leave off the name Jesus and just pray and use the term God. May we remember this verse. May we get specific. See, God's not more glorified in ambiguity than he is in specificity, right? Uh, we need to make sure that we're not just, uh, I don't wanna offend these people, but we're offending the name above all names. Use the name Jesus. First John 2, the same writer later would say this in verse 23. He would say, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. See, I don't know if we get this, but Jesus is crowned with honor 
and glory. Though he was made a little lower than the angels, though he was brought low, he has been crowned now with honor and glory. And one day, we know this verse, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The writer of Hebrews chapter 2 on the screen says, what is man that you're mindful of him? He's quoting a messianic psalm, Psalm 8. He says, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That's Jesus. Now, putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Nothing is outside of the control of Jesus. And so all must honor the Son. Number six, if you're taking note, Jesus is equal to the Father, not just in honor, but in the work of regeneration. Uh, I want to read verse 24 and 25. These are very beloved verses. Verse 24 says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and is now is when the dead will hear the voice of God and the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. What Jesus is saying here is those who have heard and believed will receive everlasting life. Uh, meaning they will not incur judgment. They will not incur spiritual death. This is immediate and this is eternal. This is not when you get to heaven. Okay? This is the moment that we trust Christ. A transaction has occurred. You've been in the stores, and I've used this illustration recently. You've been in stores where when you walk out the door, they go, hey, do you have a receipt for that? And you try to produce the receipt and you pull it out. Maybe it's Sam's Club or Costco. And you try to produce the receipt and you show, yes, it's been paid for. And they wipe it with a, with a, with a, a highlighter. And then, does that do anything? I don't know if that's magic. But they wipe it with a highlighter and then you walk out and you show, I'm safe now. It's been paid for. That receipt belongs to me. I own this. This is mine. I paid for it. Well, there hasn't been a greater uh, transactional receipt code in the world ever uttered except the one from the cross when Jesus said, to die," meaning it is finished. It is paid for. Right? The work of uh, following the law has been paid for. All is complete. It is finished. And so those who hear Jesus and believe the Father, he says, will pass from death to life. Doesn't that excite you, believer? You're going to be in heaven for eternity. If that doesn't wake you up today and get you passionate, it's getting me passionate. I don't know what will. You're going to be born again, walking with Jesus. I mean, if that doesn't excite you, we just, let's just dismiss, bring the guys up. Let's go home. You're going to heaven. You have eternal life. You've been brought from death, certain death, condemnation to eternal life. And wow, you don't have the power in yourself to do that. Jesus says, I have the power. Now, I wish that I had that power. As a pastor, I, I wish I had that power to just regenerate people. I wish there was a service and I was like, okay, let's bow our heads. And does anyone want to receive Christ? And no one raised their hand. I'm like, that guy in the back needs to, like, bing. I wish I could do that. And just like, bing. He's like, oh, and he stands up. <laughs> I just want to know Jesus. <laughs> I wish I had that power. You're driving in traffic and you see the person in the, in the rear view and they're trying to get around you and they're honking. And you're like, you know what, Lord? Bing. And all of a sudden, like, you see their eyes light up. They slow down. They turn on the Joy FM. And then they turn into Chick-fil-A, get some Christian chicken, right? I wish I had that power, but I don't. Jesus does. He has the power to regenerate us. He's equal with the Father in our regeneration. Amazing. Well, finally, number seven, if you're taking note, Jesus is equal, and this is probably the most important. He's equal in self-existence. Look at verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, 
so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Wow. Verse 26 tells us the Son has life, okay? Jesus is uncreated. Let that sink in for a minute. He wasn't birthed from the Father and the Virgin Mary. He's eternal. He is who was, who is, and who is to come. Before Abraham was, Jesus says, I am. That's going to be our next series in a few weeks. We're going to switch up and still be in the book of John, and we're going to go through this next section of John, the I am. Jesus says, I am. Uh, John, remember, in chapter 1 said, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. That's Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. What we've studied today uh, helps us to easily combat a few heresies. We mentioned modalism. That's the notion that Jesus, the Father, the Spirit are the same. Uh, It helps us to combat Arianism. That's the belief that Jesus is not God. Modern-day Arians are the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, It assists us to understand the special relationship that Jesus and his Father enjoy exclusively. But you know what? This text also helps us in maybe a more personal, profound, practical way. I want you to close your Bibles, and I want to apply this to you. Let's bring it home. Let's do what many guys say. Let's land the plane, all right? Close your Bibles. Let's land the plane. See, today, our culture is plagued by three big idols. And they're not sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Okay? These idols are not substances that we take. They're not uh, music that we listen to. They're not sensual acts that we perform. No, rather these three idols are destructive, sinful patterns that are within us, within you, within me. And I want to put them on the screen. I want you to remember these this week. This is what we wrestle with. This is what we struggle with in Western culture. And we could say globally in our fallen condition, but I see these specifically in Western culture. The first is autonomy. Autonomy is the opposite of dependence. And so we love our freedom. We love our independence. Uh, We don't need anyone. We don't need anything. We're individuals. We're self-made men. We're entrepreneurs. Look at how much I've achieved with no help, with no handout. I value my island, and I'll fight to give myself the credit. Autonomy. Ravi Zacharias uh, says this, an autonomous culture is when everyone does their own thing and there's no sense of absolutes. Autonomy. Well, that naturally leads, secondly, to arrogance. We get caught up because we're self-sufficient. We get caught up in our own vanity. And that causes us to think about ourselves, to promote ourselves, to love ourselves, and to care only for ourselves. We become the most important person in the room. We become the most important person in the picture. We become the most important person on the team, in the class, or of the organization. Arrogance. Paul Tripp says the most dangerous aspect of your relationships is not your weakness, but your delusions of strength. Self-reliance is almost always a component of a bad relationship. See, that autonomy leads to arrogance. I've got this. I'm the man. And that arrogance will eventually lead to a desire to fulfill our deepest and darkest hungers, what we could call our fallen appetites for greed, for power, for pleasure, or worse. But it starts with a desire for freedom from any authority, from all authority in our lives. Why listen to someone when I'm the source of wisdom? I've got this. And so because we're autonomous, we get arrogant, and that causes us to reject all the authority structures in our lives that challenge our supremacy. So we, we reject the authority of the government. We reject the authority of family, of the church, 
certainly the scriptures and the God who reigns supreme over all. Those are conflict, uh, in conflict with us, and so we reject or replace them to our own destruction. And that frees us to pursue whatever we want to desire, and we call good evil, and we call evil good. That's what's happened to our fallen culture, our fallen creation. And these idols progress. I mean, notice this. Self-sufficiency leads to a sense of self-importance, which ultimately leads to some sort of of self-pleasure or self-worship. And we separate ourselves. And yet that, on the screen, is the exact opposite, listen, of the way of Jesus. That is the opposite of the posture of Jesus. See, the way of Jesus is the complete antithesis of these cultural idols that we wrestle with. Think of what Adam and Eve were tempted with and how they, they gave in to the lust of the, of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And we see Jesus, the true and better Adam. What do we see him doing? Not giving in to the temptation of autonomy to worship Satan and then cut himself off from the Father. Jesus would, would not throw himself down from the temple to show off his glory, giving in to arrogance. Jesus, weary and hungry after fasting 40 days, what does he do? He does not turn the stones into bread, but instead entrusts himself to God by feeding upon the very words of God. Think for a minute, church, of the dependence of Jesus. Jesus asserts in this verse, I can do nothing by myself, of myself. There wasn't a single autonomous decision that Jesus made apart from the Father's will. Think of the dependence. Think of the humility of Jesus. Completely submitted to the Father, even to the point of death on a cross. Coming from heaven to earth, not in a glorified state, but as a human, made lower than the angels, born to those two poor young Jewish people, born into a manger outside of Bethlehem. Jesus coming to his own, and they reject and despise him. They esteem him not, lowly and meek, riding the foal of a donkey, not on a horse. Gentle, Jesus Never had an arrogant moment. Think of the dependence, the humility. Think of the rule of Jesus, the rule of God in Jesus' life. In the garden, wrestling with the implications of the cross, the weight of that crushing him, uh, his own Gethsemane, the olive press, Jesus being crushed, being squeezed in that place, and yet in that moment still submitting to the Father and entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus didn't come to seek his own, to get something, to fulfill his appetite. He came to lay down his life and completely being ruled and reigned by the leading of the Holy Spirit. If there's ever a man who had the authority that he could abuse, it was Jesus. And yet he's, what do we see? He's completely reliant upon the Father. I, I wanna invite the band forward to close us in song. And I wanna just consider this for a minute this morning. I have a pastor's challenge for us this week. And here it is. I challenge you this week to just simply imitate Jesus and his dependence upon the Father, his reliance on his heavenly Father, his humility, that this morning you would say, I'm not the vine, I'm the branch. And if I'm cut off from the vine, I'm gonna bear no fruit. Apart from him, I can do nothing. That this week you would look to Jesus as the hero, not yourself. I want you to stand with me this morning. We're gonna close in song, but I wanna read to you a Tozer, A.W. Tozer quote on the screen, and then we'll close in worship. He says this, the teaching of the New Testament is that now, at this very moment, there is a man in heaven appearing in the presence of God for us. He is as certainly a man as was Adam or Moses or Paul. He's a man glorified, but his glorification 
did not dehumanize him. Today he is a real man of the race of mankind, bearing our lineaments and dimensions, a visible and audible man whom any other man would recognize instantly as one of us. But more than this, he is the heir of all things, Lord of all lords, head of the church, firstborn of the new creation. He is the way to God, the life of the believer, the hope of Israel, and the high priest of every true worshiper. He holds the keys of death and hell and stands as advocate and surety for everyone who believes on him in truth. Salvation comes not by accepting the finished work or deciding for Christ. No, it comes by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, the whole living, victorious Lord, who as God and man fought our fight and won it, accepted our debt as his own and paid it, took our sins and died under them and rose again to set us free. This is the true Christ. Nothing less will do. Amen? Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Calvary Chapel meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more details by visiting our website, thisisshoreline.com. Tune in next week as we continue our study of the Gospel of John and learn who Jesus is.